She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The Green New Deal is... That's a hoax like the hoax I just went through. I'm not even sure. It might be a bigger one. And mine was pretty big. If you're accused of a crime by a grand jury and they don't indict you, the prosecutor doesn't go all over town saying, we thought he did this, we thought he did this, this is all the evidence. That's why a grand jury is secret. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey there, welcome to the program. We are just a fantastic program today. We had so much fun chatting with our guests from last hour. And this hour is no different. We are going to be covering a ton of different content. Let me let me get to some of that for you. We actually have Lieutenant Colonel Allen West is going to be joining us in just a minute here. We're also going to be talking about Senator Rand Paul's constitutional uh, issue. He says there is one, but it involves the FISA court, not something that President Trump may or may not have done. Uh, also, and actually I have, I need to let my producer know, we're calling Allen West right now. <laughs> they just changed the time. We're we're actually at the top of the hour with him. Um, so if you if you could call him now, that would be great. And then we're going to be talking about John King correcting the record on on Tlaib's lies. And so this is not some you know someone who's right leaning. This is someone who literally on the left and felt like they needed to correct this this woman. Um, and then. John Bash talking about our immigration system. And as we learn more about what the proposal is that's coming from Senator Lindsey Graham, this is even more important. It's more important than ever. So uh, we, we are just, we, we have a ton of content. And if you're just tuning into the show, uh, you missed a total treat. You have to go back to the podcast over at AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. We actually had Dr. Alex McFarland on. He was chatting with us. He's the host of Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. He just unpacked the Equality Act and how important it is for us to be aware of it and to tell other people what it really is. Um, And then we talked to Timothy Snowball. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. And we talked about socialism. And I'm just going to give you those really quickly. Uh, We ran through the five key points. Socialism is not new. Contrary to popular belief, it doesn't work in Europe. Um, It's not more fair or more just. It's not better for the individual. It's not superior to capitalism. Now, this is all kind of basic explainer stuff, um, but it's, you know, he, obviously it's not basic because if it were, people wouldn't need this. Oh, okay. People wouldn't need this explained to them. Um, so again, what Timothy Snowball suggested was that we, in our volunteer work, we explain the importance of the capitalist system. And there are a lot of great comparisons that you can make. He named off someone who I, I prefer. If you want to understand how capitalism works as opposed to socialism, the book Economics, um, I think it's called Pure Economics by Thomas Sowell. And he's written like 50 or 60 books. But that is one of the books that if you, it's a big, thick book, but it's perfect reading. It's not too difficult. It's not one of those ones where you're like, hmm. I have to put this down. I can't. It's actually fascinating because he unpacks a lot of different cultural phenomenon that we attribute to racism and other things like that. The book's about economics, but he covers how some behaviors by people groups 
are actually, they're kind of hereditary. They're passed down generationally. And you see those same behaviors in people across the pond in England. Only these people weren't black, they were white. So it's not about skin color. It's about, basically, you have to have the free market so that people who want to succeed can. And the largesse of those people is what then drives philanthropic work, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, just one more thing. And I got to say this to you. I'm, I, I'm not, this isn't my idea, but it has to be shared. Um, w- rich people on the whole are very philanthropically minded, giving, you know, a, a, a huge portion of what they make to disadvantaged people, causes, et cetera. But there's a certain group of people that I see that aren't very philanthropically minded, and they happen to be the titans of uh, social media industry. And we've, we've mentioned it here on the show a few times. We've talked about... Um, We've talked about Jeff Bezos and um, Zuckerberg and some others. Um, ah, so one of the things that has totally been a bummer about that is that we don't see them giving. They actually don't have the ability to, um, they don't have the ability to give to organizations or to people because they have so many people that they hate. And and I think it's kind of sad because when you look at the amount of money that they have, the amount of money that um, a Jeff Bezos or a, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the things they could do with that money to help people instead of trying to make the government force people who are already giving, who are in the middle class to pay for even more by higher taxation and programs that don't work, it becomes a bit of a travesty. So you know, I'm, I, all I want to do when we're talking about these things is I don't ever want to make someone like Jeff Bezos be forced to give his money to something. I don't begrudge him his money. I don't think that Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg should have their money taxed or taken away from them. Quite the opposite. They have every right to do what they want, but I I'm, have every right to make judgment calls on what they're doing with it or not doing with it and the way that they're behaving, uh, you know, when it comes to they, they want the government to force people to do stuff, but they don't want to do those same things themselves. So let's move on through the show sheet and update. We are not going to have Alan West with us because we had a time zone mix up. He thought we were on Eastern and we're on Central, so we're an hour behind, and he's actually on a plane. We won't have him today, but we will get him. Uh, we'll, we'll reschedule him. We'll get him on for possibly next week sometime. We, we're pretty booked up for the remainder of this week, but we'll definitely get him on to talk about the NRA and he's actually calling for the resignation of Wayne LaPierre for financial ir- financial irregularities. And so I definitely want to talk to him, and we will. Um, so let's get to Senator Rand Paul talking about the primary constitutional issue involving the FISA. It's number three. One of the things that Adam Schiff and the other partisans don't understand is that if you're accused of a crime by a grand jury and they don't indict you, the prosecutor doesn't go all all over town saying, we thought he did this, we thought he did this, this is all the evidence, that's why a grand jury is secret. See, the Mueller investigation said that the president did not commit any underlying crime. And so now they're all saying he obstructed justice about something that was not considered to be a crime. So this is really, I think, degenerated into partisan politics. And the best 
best thing we could do at this point is say, let's get on with the country's business. Are there some underlying constitutional issues? Yes, the primary underlying constitutional issue here is whether or not the FISA court, which is supposed to spy on foreigners, which has a lower constitutional standard, can you use the FISA court to spy on a presidential campaign? Can you use the FISA court to seek information about Americans? That truly is a travesty and truly is unconstitutional, and that's the root of the problem we should be addressing. Okay, so he's right. <laughs> and haven't we all been concerned about the FISA court? So the latest news out about the FISA court is that they have unmasked more Americans than any other year of their existence in the past 12 months. And it's reaching epidemic levels. Hundreds of thousands of Americans who have communicated with foreigners have had their identities unmasked and they've been basically surveilled without a warrant. Warrantless surveillance. That is unconstitutional. People should be going to jail. Well, of course, after due process. I mean, I don't believe in jailing folks before they've been given due process, but you understand what I'm saying. People should be prosecuted and going to jail. This idea that we can use the government to cover over uh, unconstitutional activities, that's not okay. You cannot say, well, we're going to stand up this court, the, the, you know, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, we're going to give a court the ability to surveil people who are not protected by the Constitution, but we're not going to we're not going to surveil Americans. And then later you're like, "Ooh, creeping unconstitutionalism, creeping tyranny. We actually unmasked a whole bunch of Americans, like hundreds of thousands of them. And now we know what they talked about and we didn't have a warrant, but we're protected by the fight. No, you're not. My question is, where are these attorneys? Where is the ACLU? Where are these people who claim that they care about the Constitution and the individual rights of Americans? Why aren't they out there suing to get the FISA court back into line with the Constitution? And I understand why, why it's there. So before we get on, onto a place where it appears that I don't understand that the FISA court was stood up to try to combat terrorism, I get it. I'm with you. I want to fight terrorism, too. But now, so why did they unmask those hundreds of thousands of Americans? And how many terror-related prosecutions came from those unmaskings? And how many of those Americans who were unmasked turned out to be criminally-minded or terrorism-involved? So if the number is really teensy-tiny, like zero, then why were they unmasked? Oh, because they can and as long as they're allowed to do it with no oversight, without the ACLU riding in on their hobby horses and demanding some constitutional rectification, without this going before one of these appellate courts or even the Supreme Court, without the Department of Justice even taking this up, I know that would be like one part of the government suing another, but that's what has to happen here. Somebody's got to have some principles, enough principles to actually say, you know what? We got to do something about this. This isn't right. This is a violation of the constitutional rights of Americans. And regardless of political party, you know what? I'd like to see some bipartisanship on that. Let's get some bipartisanship on this puppy right here. So then you had Trey Gowdy. He was on the television talking about Barr and how Barr assigned this prosecutor to investigate the Russia probe. And this is something pretty, like, again, wow. Um, it's number two. 
You know, over the weekend, Senator Graham has really, really exercised over the lack of corroboration of this dossier that was used in court filings. So the question then becomes, was it unverified, uncorroborated when you used it? And then when did you begin to corroborate it? And, and what I'm telling Mr. Durham or whoever is going to look into this, I think you'll see late in 2016, well after it had been used, it was still unverified, and the people responsible for it were referring to it as unverified. And one or the other demanded that it be included in the intelligence assessment, which then leaked, which then prompted the discussion you and I are having now yeah. publicly. It, mm. And so the, again, <laughs> the leaking and then this and then that, you know, and uh, we will um, later in the week, we'll kind of unpack the timeline around um the surveillance like did the surveillance come before or after the dossier was the dossier the reason for the surveillance the spying or was the dossier the justification for the spying which occurred before the dossier we're gonna we're gonna unpack that on the show i i would i would set your set your clock set your timer set your reminder put it on your calendar do whatever you got to do to make sure you tune into the show on uh on friday we're gonna un or sorry Monday, we're going to unpack that. Um, I'm I'm laying it out for you because there's so much for us to cover. I can't get to every single little thing right in, um, you know, this program, actually. Um, so I just, again, where are they? Sometimes you want to look at, you, you're saying to yourself, you know, mm, uh, the ACLU always comes in when it's something having to do with religion. Like if people are sitting around singing hymns in public and enjoying themselves or listening to some Christian contemporary music and someone breaks out a guitar and they, they start getting happy, the ACLU is right there. You can't do that in public. Separation of church and state. They got lawsuits. They have uh, attorneys with big, thick, black, you know, glasses on, expensive ones. And they come in with their little old selves and they start, you know, raising a ruckus because they're like, you can't be doing that here. Anytime Christians are running a business and the business is thriving and successful and people are enjoying it, then they come in. They're like, well, yeah, I don't see any LGBT people here. You you, you can't be having fun here without LGBT. Uh, and then you're like, well, wait, I, I didn't invite anyone. People are just coming as they you got to have some LGBT people here. I mean, everywhere you look, you see people having fun and the ACLU is riding in trying to stop it. And then here we are. This is a totally different situation. This is an actual constitutional crisis. The FISA court represents that crisis. I agree with him completely. And where are they? Well, they're not going to be there. How about that? They're not going to be there for you. That's what. All right. I think I heard the music. <laughs> We're getting ready to go to break. Um, check the phone lines. They're open. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. You can call in and join the program. Um, up next, we are going to be listening to John King correcting the record on Tlaib's lies about um, the Holocaust and the Jewish people. <sighs> yeah, that's what we're going to be up to. So stay right there. We'll be back with more. Our Holy Land tour for March of 2020 is set. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Last year, we sold out in August, and I expect us to do that again this year. There is such a high demand, especially among Christians in America, 
to see Israel, the land of the Bible. So we're going again in March on our annual trek. So I wanted to go ahead and let you know if you want to sign up and register, get more information, whatever the case may be, if you want to go to our website, twholyland.com, twholyland.com, everything is there, twholyland.com. You can even print off a brochure from that website. It's going to be a wonderful time visiting Israel with brothers and sisters from across our country as we go to the Holy Land in March. So go ahead and get signed up now, twholyland.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Since a number of presidential candidates are warning about voter suppression, it seems like a good time to accurately define the term. Let's start with a simple issue. Cutting back early voting days is not voter suppression. Early voting in North Carolina reduced the days for early voting from 17 to 10. Florida reduced their early voting days from 14 to 8. Citizens who are properly registered can still vote, but the number of days you can vote early are less. If this were an example of voter suppression, then any of the states that don't provide early voting would be guilty of voter suppression. Hope you can see the fallacy of calling this voter suppression. Now let's look at the more common complaint that voter ID laws and other voter requirements constitute voter suppression. I've documented in previous commentaries that after most of these states instituted voter laws, minority voting increased. For example, Georgia law required voters to be removed from the polls if they had not cast a ballot in three years and did not respond to any inquiry by mail. Even though such voters were removed from the rolls, black voter registration increased, and in the last election, African-American turnout also increased. All of these facts, along with other relevant statistics, haven't prevented candidates from making claims of voter suppression. In her keynote speech at the NAACP convention last week, Senator Kamala Harris proclaimed that without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be governor of Georgia, Andrew Gillum, governor of Florida. For the record, Abrams lost by 54,000 votes, Gillum lost by 32,000 votes. I hope you keep some of these facts in mind since you'll be hearing more about voter suppression from a number of candidates. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. But she also fails a critical fact and context test. Yes, as she said, Palestinians lost land in the creation of Israel. But she ignored the fact that Palestinian leaders at the time allied themselves with Hitler. And the total war was how the Arab world reacted to the declaration of Israeli independence. Wow. <laughs> what? What? So... Why is this a problem? Why why can't we just admit that this woman has said awful anti-Semitic revisionary type things and that she should be censored for it? In fact, we've gone from the first horrible things that she said, who can even remember what those were, right? To now where if she says anything, their knee-jerk reaction is to defend it even before they know what she said. So you had Nancy Pelosi out there defending her. You had a whole bunch of them out there defending her. And then when they found out what she'd said, they really listened to it. They're like, well, uh, darn, that actually is wrong. You know, she actually is revising. Does she mean that? What, 
Are we sure she understood what she was booking? Like, because she said that. Yeah, that's what's going on. People are sitting around, you know, and you know how it is. You're sitting and you're like, well, I don't know if he really meant, does he know what those words mean? Does he understand that those words mean what they don't mean that they mean that that's people kind of trying to justify. They're like trying to figure out a way to make it better. Well, there's no way to make what she said better except for her to say, you know, I got that wrong. I apologize. Now, admittedly, there are many of us. Yes, I said us over here on the right. Yes, right wing watch. I'm on the right. I'm a conservative. I'm black. And the fact that you're li- listening, um, <clears throat> it brings me joy. Excuse me, people. It brings me joy uh, to know that you're tuning in and, you know, rock on with your bad self. We appreciate you. We appreciate your, I don't want to call it hate. It's just like cataloging what they see to be things that people on the right are saying wrong. Um, I also think it's funny that they call it right wing watch because there's no corresponding left wing watch. So who's watching the left wing? Honestly, the truth is it's MRC TV and Newsbusters and Tech Watch and Dan Gaynor and all those good folks. And, and, you know, God bless them. But the right wing watch, like they always pick on stuff that we say, like it's not okay for us to have our opinions and it's okay for them to report on it and to disagree. But I disagree with the name. And I also think it's crazy that they now know that I exist. And, and to be honest, I think they had noticed me like five or six years ago, but then they, I don't know if they stopped paying attention to me or if I haven't said anything incendiary, which I highly doubt, but they were back at it again. I, I have a Google alert that I noticed they'd actually noticed that I'd said something. It's something, actually, it's a story from onenewsnow.com. Um, let me just, I will pull it up right here. Now, let me also, I said, so remember in the end of the first hour, we were talking about this guy who flew his helicopter in and out of his backyard. And then he kind of lied saying that he was eligible to fly the plane, but he's really not. Um, he says he, he, he said the FAA, he didn't know they revoked his license. He was unaware. Um, he also made false statements about his application for a medical certificate, which you have to have in order to fly an aircraft. So he's charged with one count of serving as an airman without an airman certificate and one count of making false statements to federal agents. He actually faces up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000 if he's convicted. Um, so pretty sad. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to pull up this right wing watch article they had and I don't see it here. I know that it was a Google alert um, for me and that they said something about me, but I'll pull, I'll, I'll get it maybe on the next break. Um, so how often does it happen that a person flies a helicopter as a personal vehicle? Um, I don't know, but it was fascinating to me, the story, um, and this was in East Brookfield, Massachusetts. And, and I think, yeah, that's a, that's six days ago for, for Boston. And it's a story that has actually made it all over the place. Like it's, it's a big, big story. Um, <laughs> there are actually lots of different places that are reporting this. Um, cause he's made more than 50 unlicensed flights with a helicopter that he had in his backyard. So apparently it's not common, but I do think it's, um, I think it's a funny story. So in addition to all of these good things that we have going on here, 
Um, and we did talk to, I don't know if, if you've just tuned in the show, welcome. Call lines are open at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. We've been talking a little bit about and, and kind of weaving in and out. I had mentioned that we have one of our kids, our middle child is graduating from high school on Monday. And it's just been, it's it's not been as emotionally draining as last year when it was our first child, but this time it's almost as if time is speeding up every day that goes by it's going faster and faster and we're getting closer to the actual day and I want to be focused like you know I'm focused on my work and then focus on on what's going on here at home but it's it's a bit discombobulating if that's still a word um so we talked a little bit about the just the the new law in Alabama um, but we didn't kind of give the details of it. And I know when the law passed in New York, I gave all of the gory details of how they were basically legalizing infanticide and decriminalizing the killing of a baby while it's still in the womb. You know, and usually those happen either by accident or manslaughter or when a boyfriend or a husband wants to force a woman to have an abortion. And so that's no longer illegal. But Alabama State Senate, actually, this and this has been the big news that they've passed a controversial bill and this by the way if you're wondering where I'm, I got the word controversial from I'm on foxnews.com foxnews.com and this is their wording by Vandana Rambaran he wrote this piece Alabama State Senate passed a controversial bill on Tuesday that would outlaw nearly all abortions in the state and make performing one a felony unless the mother's health is at risk the bill will make the punishment of performing abortions up to 99 years or life in prison, although the woman who actually receives the abortion would not be subject to a felony charge. Hmm. So there, the, the bill is actually passed the Alabama State House 74 to 3, and Democratic lawmakers actually wanted to add amendments on Tuesday that would create exceptions in the instances of rape and incest. They were put down. Um, one of the Democrats, her name is Senator State Senator Vivian Davis Figueres said, you don't have to raise that child. You don't have to carry that child. You don't have to provide for that child. And yet you want to make that decision. I love it that she's referring to it as a child. And then at the end, she says that decision. She should say, but yet you want to make sure that it can be that it can't be killed. That child can't be killed. Notice how somewhere mid range and all of these arguments that the Democrats make about abortion, they always switch over they call it a child at some point they'll say that fetus that clump of cells that child and then at the end that decision that choice they euthanize it they they clean it up at the end so they don't have to say well, it's it's not your choice to, ch- to kill that child it's the mom's okay i mean okay so they also had people coming forward and uh, like democratic senator roger smitherman talked about he, he and his wife aborting one of their children because the child had Down syndrome. And so he said, you know, you, the legislature shouldn't have made that choice for me. Now, I, I got to say, you know, he, he goes into some other arguments that are just crazy. He says, why don't we make amendments to this bill that make it a felony for a man to have a vasectomy? Why don't we expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act? Both were struck down. Those, those amendments didn't make it. 
Now, Republican Governor Kay Ivey has not confirmed whether she'll sign the measure into law, but during the 2018 midterms, 59% of voters expressed their support for a bill that completely banned abortions in the state of Alabama. And I've seen a lot of uh, leftists saying the only reason they're doing this stuff is so they can, um, you know, get these cases appealed and kicked to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court can overturn Roe v. Wade. And what I have to say about that, and, and obviously people feel like the court is ripe for this and, and it's the right time. But without Amy Coney Barrett on the court, you know, in other words, that one more vote to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you've no guarantees because you can't rely on Judge Roberts. And you certainly can't, like, no offense to Kavanaugh. Y'all know how strong I was in supporting him. But he has been siding with the liberal justices. Now, maybe he's genuinely siding with the liberal justices because the cases represent freedom issues for Americans and the right for Americans to petition you know, their government or, or to sue and seek legal redress. Um, but I don't think we should be as firm and strong about Kavanaugh and where he is, even though he said he was pro-life and he's a Catholic. I get it, but we shouldn't take anything for granted. And so it's good to see these pro-life laws pass, and I'm all about it. I'm here for it. And I want to see uh, Governor Ivey sign that into law. But I also want to caution people against just, you know, we can't just move forward without thought and consideration and carefully, you know, plotting out the next moves. Pray, ask the Lord for guidance, move on that guidance. But we can't just take it for granted that, oh, all of a sudden we have this conservative majority on the court. Just recently, I was reading this morning, they've been fighting like cats and dogs over the issue of the death penalty. And they've been having dueling dissenting rulings. And there've been a lot of death penalty cases that have come before them. And really some of them are just nuisance death penalty cases where someone waits until the last possible minute to say, well, this state doesn't allow my particular religious person to come into the execution room. So I shouldn't have to be executed as if the person being there would stop you from being executed or would make the execution easier for you. The fact is they're using like lethal injection where you just go to sleep. Um, it's not like you're in front of a firing squad or something. And these people are using these excuses. And it's a typical tactic by attorneys who want to save the life of their client, whether they're guilty or not, whether they believe they're guilty or innocent or not. They use the due process clauses and provisions and everything else they can find, anything under the sun, including these um, incorrect kind of motions where they say, you know, he's a Buddhist and in this state, you're only allowed to have a Christian or Catholic or Jewish religious person, or he's a Muslim. And the Supreme Court struck that guy's claim down. He was a Muslim. He wanted to have any mom in the room with him when he was put to death. The Supreme Court said, nope, you're, you're going to the chair. We're not changing laws for you. Just do it. But in this other case, uh, they're actually the stay of execution was granted because he couldn't get a Buddhist person in to be with him as he was executed. He waited. He found out he couldn't bring him in. And then he waited until he was two days away from execution and then filed something. Basically, it's a last minute ditch effort to, to stop the execution. So that's what's going on. Um, it, you know, these are direct challenges to Roe v. Wade. I wouldn't count on them. I would not count on the current court to do things just, you know, you just think to yourself, oh, they're conservatives. We've got conservatives all over this country who act like Democrats, live like Democrats, talk like Democrats, 
and disappoint us like Democrats. The idea that we can just trust that everybody who's on the court who was appointed by a Republican would behave in a certain way when faced with the issue of Roe v. Wade is not taking the lay of the land and, and actually what's happening here into consideration. Um, so then there's this story, um, which is, it, this is kind of interesting. Beth Moore is challenging a theologian explaining why she feels women should preach in church. Now, full disclosure for my part, I don't believe that women should pastor. The Bible talks about women being placed over men in a position of authority for teaching the scriptures. And that is not something that God has called for us to do. It doesn't mean we can't lead Bible studies or things like that, but pastoring whole congregations, that's not biblical. That's, that's what I feel that I've read in the scriptures. That's what I, that's what I know. So you've got, she's a, she's actually a Bible teacher, prominent Southern Baptist Bible teacher, Beth Moore, and she's ignited a firestorm on Twitter because this theologian singled her out in a blog post because she's been encouraging women to preach. His name is Owen Strakan, and he's an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, in his May 7th blog post, he was surprised that both Beth, Beth Moore and SBC president J.D. Greer support a woman teaching and preaching to the corporate body. So again, I have no problem with women leading, you know, a, a ministry, you, you know, doing uh, all these other different kind of stuff. But when we're talking about pastoring and being over in headship and authority over husbands, men, etc., I'm not there for it. Um, Owen Strakan has actually, he's shocked. He followed up on Twitter the next day. He said, Here's his quote, complementarians disagree cheerfully about much. One thing we have massive agreement on, women do not preach on Sunday to the church. Doing so is functional egalitarianism. We will not capitulate here. Complementarians embrace the scriptural view that the role of men and women is distinct and complements one another within the home and the church. Egalitarians believe that the Bible calls for mutual submission in Christian relationships without a hierarchy. Now, I can tell you that's that's not what the scripture says. It doesn't say that men are to submit to the wife and the wife to the husband. It says women submit to your husbands and men love your wives as Christ loved the church. Remember what Christ did for the church. He died for us. He experienced the weight of all of our sin for all eternity, all of it, and, and received the recompense that was meet to us and then after conquering and vanquishing death, he then went on and was resurrected and rose to the, to the right hand of the Father. I mean, come on. This is not that tough. Um, and if you disagree, for goodness sakes, you're welcome to your opinion. You are welcome. But don't send me 80,000 links to try to change my mind. I'm not here for that. I'm not here for you to teach me. My favorite is when someone disagrees with me and says, you're so teachable on other issues. Am I? I kind of think I'm more like a stick in the mud. Once I know something, I'm not moving. A stick in concrete even. I'm not teachable at all. No offense. All right, when we get back, we'll have more for you. Stay there. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a pre-born pregnancy center, she encounters love and compassion 
and gets to meet her baby by ultrasound. And I was like, I'm gonna go to the abortion clinic. And I already had my mind made up. This mom didn't make it to the abortion clinic. Instead, God led her to a preborn center. And the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces and then she's like, it's two. And I'm like, I just start crying. I started texting my friends and like, I can't. The ministry of Preborn was able to help this mom save not just one life, but two through ultrasounds. Preborn centers help save babies' lives and souls. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. I have two dogs. Sometimes when we go walking, they'll get a sticker in their paw. My dachshund will stop, hold up that foot, and just look annoyed because it has slowed her down and that she needs my help to get rid of it. The terrier, on the other hand, would rather limp along like, I'm okay, I'm just walking it off, than to stop for me to take that painful thing out of her paw. It made me think, we're like that when it comes to our relationship with God. We either have complete reliance on Him and turn to Him as soon as we have a need, or we go along suffering, trying to fix it all ourselves. I've done both. How about you? There's lots less pain and suffering when you choose to turn to Jesus right away. But maybe you've never made the decision to follow Him and don't know how to ask Him. This life is much easier to navigate when you're relying on Jesus. If you'd like to find out more, call 888-NEED-HIM or chat with us at chataboutjesus.com. The Dean's List with Janice Dean. A stranger's random act of kindness buying meals for students on their prom day makes today's Dean's List. Therese de Leon and a prom group of 10 friends arrived at Ted's Bulletin for dinner in D.C. As they were looking over the menu, their server returned to the table to inform them they were in for a special treat and had a huge surprise. At first, the group thought it was a joke because there were so many other prom groups there as well. And when they realized their server wasn't kidding, they were speechless. At the end of the meal, the server identified the woman who covered their tab. The prom group walked over and thanked her for making their night truly special and much more memorable. She reminded them to always love ourselves and that they were beautiful. Before parting ways, they all huddled together and took a picture, which Therese posted on Twitter. She added, it was refreshing and enlightening to know there are still kind-hearted people out there. Thank you to the kind stranger for your wonderful gesture and for making their prom even more memorable. Janice Dean, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And I'm the U.S. attorney with the largest stretch of southern border, some 660 miles. And there are two big things we need to do. First, we need a lot tougher border security. That means more barriers like walls, but it also means more communication technology, more agents, more roads. We need to be able to prevent people from entering this country illegally. They need to come in legally. The second thing we need to do is fix our broken asylum system, as I mentioned earlier. Right now, most pe- only 13% of people that make an asylum claim actually win that claim. Most people are presenting claims that don't have merit, but just crossing illegally and presenting that claim, you get to stay here for years. Uh, well, that creates a huge incentive for people to come into this country illegally. We have got to fix that system. Well, he's totally right about that. Totally right about that. Um, 
there's just there's no denying that we currently incentivize illegal entry because if it wasn't profitable and it didn't yield the desired results, so many wouldn't do it. Call lines are open at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So that was John Bash talking about how we need to fix our broken immigration system. And I I just want to give a little bit more detail to kind of circle back around here on the the issue with Beth Moore and the teaching, the women teaching the men and all that stuff. She had a lengthy Twitter thread that so a series of tweets that she put out about this and in some of the tweets she's it seems almost like they're arguing beside each other instead of with each other because she's talking about teaching women in church for 40 years he's not talking about her teaching women he's talking about her addressing the congregation from the pulpit as a preacher full disclosure that has happened at our church before i'm so we attend a non-denominational um evangelical church. So not the same rules and, you know, strictures as the Southern Baptist convention. Um, but that, that doesn't change what I believe about it. And I, I, I understand that people are going to have disagree and disagreements about this. And, and that's what's happening here. He closes this out. Um, Strahan says, and here's the, the quote he has for a woman to teach and preach adult men is to defy God's word and God's design. Elders must not allow such a sinful practice to do so as to bring the church body into disobedience against God. Um, and so the, the title of his piece is divine order in a chaotic age. And so he talks about evangelicals. He, he talks about my, you know the, <laughs> the denomination that my husband and I attend He says uh, in his piece here, he says the meaning of manhood and womanhood. Many evangelicals have little idea on how to respond to the view that's just described. And before he says preaching order in an age that despises it. So he talks about our culture not embracing divine order in either scriptural form or natural form. Our culture is anti-order. And so you have to agree with that. What we see happening in America today with the, the, the birth rate declining is a direct result of marriage being out of order. And I'm not talking about the redefinition of marriage with same-sex marriage. That is also an offshoot of marriage being out of order. It is too many men not assuming headship over their homes, too many women who will not be led, um, too much feminism, you know, too much of this idea that men and women aren't just equal, but they are indistinguishable from each other and that any man can fill the role that a woman can fill and any woman can fill the role that any man can fill and that children don't need two parents. I mean, once you get far enough down that path, you see not just degradation of the family itself, but you see people avoiding making families and the decline in the birth rate is the natural thing that passes that, that happens. It's the natural next occurrence after the passage of same sex marriage. It has happened in every European country. First, they have the rise of feminism. Then they have the rise of LGBT as a movement. Then those people allow same-sex marriage. Then people stop getting married and they stop having children. Out-of-wedlock birth increases, but intact marital births decline. And then you get to a place like in Japan where they just aren't making enough people to replace their population. Germany is the same. Um, a number of European countries have dropped below the death spiral, which is 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, 1.9, 1.10, 1.11, 1.12, 1.13, 1.14, 1.15, 1.16, 1.17, 1.18, 1.19, 1.20, 1.21, 
replacement is 2.3. America's hovering right at, I think of the last time I looked, it was 2.1. So the, the clarion call that uh, Strahan is, is making here, he's talking about, you know, this chaotic age that we live in and women preaching. And, and this is just an extension of what we've seen in the home. We've seen the natural order of the intact family obliterated. We've seen women, honestly, this, this is, I see this so often now. I'm no longer even, it doesn't even, I don't even bat an eyebrow anymore. And that is uh, the number of young couples that we encounter. Um, and I just encounter them in, in many different situations. And the first thing you hear out of them is, oh, well, I got to figure out what we're going to do for our menu for this week. And it's always the man. The men are menu planning and they're cooking or they're looking up recipes. The men are talking about what they're going to eat. And the women are just standing there smiling, looking cute. They, they honestly don't even understand how ridiculous it is that the man would be doing all the cooking. And I know that there have been couples that have had that kind of reversal of roles for eons. There have been men who've cooked and, you know, their wives are not good cooks and they just don't. But for it to be at such an epidemic where young women no longer know how to cook, their feminist moms never taught them because they didn't want their daughters to be responsible for cooking. And so the boys who they're all taught how to cook because you shouldn't have to rely on a woman and you shouldn't have to wait for a woman to, to do anything for you. Then the men actually know how to cook. They were raised to know how to cook or they take cooking classes. You'd be shocked if you go to the, the grocery stores that have those wonderful little cooking events in the evenings that you can sign up for. How many men are in there learning how to cook? Because their wives won't do it. They, the women that they're in love with don't cook. And that's just one aspect of what I'm talking about. It's also the prevalence of the stay-at-home dad or the non-working spouse that's a man. The women who they not only assume the responsibility for the entire uh, care of, of the financial prosperity of the, of the family, but they're also in the leadership role where if they have to decide between one place or another for vacation, she has the final say. The woman has a final say on so much. And, and, you know, for some people, they're like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Why, are, why aren't we having more kids? Why, aren't, why don't we have more intact families? Why isn't the di divorce rate declining? If women being in charge is so fantastic, why aren't the other social metrics increasing? And I am not some, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a person who believes that women should be subjugated to men. But when we get away from the natural order that God has ordained for us, we get into this territory where now that we've completely upended all of the natural rudimentary basic structures of marriage. Now people like Beth Moore in, in a reaction to misogyny and, and, you know, abusive situations that she's seen and observed and maybe even been subjected to herself, things that people need to repent for and apologize to her for. And, you know, request her forgiveness for. Instead, she's turning everything on its head and saying, well, because some men in leadership in the Southern Baptist Church have been misogynists or have condoned or covered up this or that, bad acts, behavior, etc. Now we just need to have women be preachers too. That's not how this works. You don't right one wrong by instituting another one. Which means if she's allowed to propagate this idea and many come alongside her and begin to believe it, you have a lot of dissatisfied women sitting in the church wishing that I wish our preacher was a woman. We have a lot of women going and starting up churches and everything that comes along with that. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's not, it's not what it's supposed to be. 
So he says evangelicals need help, the meaning of manhood and womanhood. He says many evangelicals have little idea on how to respond and that we've had very little grounding in the order of creation. We know God created the earth, but we haven't heard much more than that. Now, I'm, I don't have this problem. I am not uh, biblically illiterate here. That's what he's describing. Um, they can sense that homosexuality is sinful, but beyond a few biblical citations, they do not have a doctrinal position on the matter. Now, I go to an evangelical church and I am surrounded by people who defy this, this uh, assessment that he's making. They've heard little about divine design. Again, I'm not sure what evangelicals he's bumping into, but this is not accurate of the evangelical churches that I've been a member of here in the St. Louis metro area. Now, he says the design and order of creation, the divine design is vital, grounded in theistic ontology itself, the very bedrock of Christian theology and Christian worldview. You could say it this way. There's order in the home. There's order in the churches. There's order in the world God has made. You can't just could say it. You should say it that way. That's a perfect way of summing it up. So he says, God doesn't tell us to select leaders according to the gifting and talent. The Lord working through the spirit calls only godly men to provide spiritual leadership, shepherding and teaching for the gathered assembly of God's people. All this, as we have said, is spiritual and ecclesial order. It's dependent upon God making of the sexes. First, Adam was formed, then Eve. Okay. And then he goes on and I'm, you know, I'm kind of giving you the highlights here. Scripture and history, men are called to shepherd and instruct the corporate body. I think that's right. And I think that's harmful to women at all. It's really great for women and men if we take the Bible at its word and operate within it. Um, if we take the Bible at its word, this is his, these are his words, then we recognize there is no way for a woman to instruct the gathered church, whether in an authoritative or non-authoritative way. Congregational preaching and teaching is authoritative for the word of God is authoritative. There is no non-authoritative way to preach and teach the Bible. Any who would doubt this point might recall how Paul contrasts the words of men with the word of God. So he's speaking about in the church, in the body. Uh, it's, it's an interesting piece. Um, I would just say, you know, well, one more thing. He mentions Mother's Day. He says, in the terms of the ministry and in Christian testimony, women are free, gloriously free to evangelize, witness to the glory of God in the secular, work, secular workplace, serve in the mission field, ideally on teams populated by men who can serve as pastors. Yet we cannot miss this. The scriptural focus on feminine domesticity means the church joyfully promotes homemaking as a glorious call of God. Whatever the secular culture says, the Lord loves motherhood, wifely submission to a husband in everything, family building, and the training of children to know Christ. So, wow. He reiterates that women should not preach or offer public teaching in the gathered worship service in local churches. Um, so, I think... I think he makes a good point, and I think it's kind of, obviously, it's an argument that will continue to be had um, for people who believe that the Bible says something different. They're not going to be swayed by his argument, and um, I, I just would hope that people would see his argument for the the basis of it rooted in Scripture as opposed to seeing it as misogynistic. Um, I don't think it's misogynistic what he's saying. He's, he doesn't sound at all as if he's a hater of women or wanting to keep women down or stop them from fulfilling God's call on their life. So it's an interesting subject. Uh, we have time for a quick phone call. Keith in Michigan. Hey, thanks for calling the show today. 
Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I love your talk with Dr. McFarlane. That was oh, yeah. really great. He's a great yeah, man. Yeah, he's awesome. You, you both yes. hit it off great. Yeah. He's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Hey, um, one of the things that uh, I've been married for 27 years, all by the grace of God, and that I have learned um, one of the things that I went to was a marriage conference back some years ago, my mm. family life. And they, there was a, one of the speakers in there commented, and you'll, you'll appreciate this because I come from, a, from an Army background, military oh, background. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the one guy said to the husband, think of it as you're a private. He said, between the husband and wife, you're equal on the sight of God. But somebody's got to be responsible. He said, it's similar to a general going up to a band of privates that are just standing around, gaggling around. And a private says, uh, excuse me, the general says to the private, to one of the privates, I want you guys to all get together and do this feat, you know, dig a hole, do whatever, and I'll be back in three hours, and I want the job done. Private, mm-hmm. he's looking at one private. He's expecting that one person to get the job done. Now, everybody's the same rank. Everybody's doing the, you know, has the same responsibility, except now this one guy has been directed by a general to get the job done. Who's he going to look for or look at to make sure the job's done? Him. Not everybody. That one yeah. private. He put, basically elevated him thing. to give him leadership. He's the leader of the privates. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, that's what God is looking for us as husbands. Yes, we are equal in the sight of God between men and women. We're, you know, he has died for us, for our sins, and so on and so forth. But he's expecting us to be leaders of our family. Mm. So well put. That is a perfect analogy. Thank you for sharing that and for calling into the show today. And I just want to reiterate that, um, you know, when we do things God's way, what he does is he blesses it. He promises, promises us blessings and protection and relationship and, and anointing. He promises those things if we're obedient. And so we always have better ideas for doing stuff. As humans, that's kind of a part of our innate thing. But in the end, it's God's way that works. All right. God bless you. Back with you tomorrow. Have a great evening.